Welcome to Greater Possibilities podcast from Invesco, where we put concerns into context and opportunities into focus. I'm Brian Levitt. And I'm Jody Phillips. And today we'll be discussing our 2024 annual outlook with Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist, and Alessio DeLongas, Head of Investments for Invesco Investment Solutions. 2024. Outlook time, Jody. 2024. Time. That's what's blowing my mind. It was, uh, are you ready? That was a fast year. It was. It was. And look, my normal answer to that observation would be something like time flies when you're having fun. But I don't know, from a, mar- from a market <laughs> perspective, is that anywhere close to reality? Yeah, it was It was definitely, it has been more fun than last year. I mean, we're not through it yet, but it's certainly been more fun for last than last year, at least for the market. It's all relative, I guess. Yeah, I mean, look, there's certainly no shortage of challenges and conflict in the world. Speaking from the market perspective, I guess it's been a better year than 2022. Yeah, I mean, the difference is 2022 was one of those rare years in which things just got worse relative to expectations. All right. So so 2023 was a year in which conditions were generally better than expected. Yeah, I would say the economy has been more resilient than many had expected. Um, good news. Well, good. Yeah, we definitely had so many predictions for a recession that didn't seem to come to pass this year. And along with that, so many mea culpas from the economists who made those predictions. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Don't Apologies always sound better in Latin. They really do. Um, but, but not only the economy being more resilient, inflation came down faster than many had expected. So that was also, that also has been treated as good news this year. So I know that's true, but Americans don't seem to be feeling all that good. You've been showing me some of the polls, Brian. What's 78% say that the U.S. is heading in the wrong direction and about 80% say the economy is only fair or poor and getting worse. So, so why isn't this matching up? That's a very good question. <laughs> um, I, I guess I'll go back to the, I'll go back to a Clinton era line. Um, it's the price is stupid. You know, even though um, inflation rate has come down, mm-hmm. you know, if you were up 9% year over year last June and you're up 3% year over year now, it's a lot better for the market. But, you know, prices are still that's right. <laughs> prices are still higher for people. So, you know, it's like it's like you think about like even Thanksgiving. Right. Mm-hmm. Or think about cooking. You know, people have been looking at the price of eggs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they they're down to $2 now from a high of over four, but they were $1 before the pandemic. So it's just, it, it still feels not great again for, for it's all relative. So look, okay. So what you're telling me is consumers aren't happy, but if you're an eggheaded market strategist, things maybe look okay. <laughs> yeah. I like what you did there. Yeah. And we actually have a misery index, unemployment plus inflation and it's falling and it's below the long-term average. So it's a bit different than how people are feeling. There's an index for literally everything, isn't there? Misery index. So so maybe the economy isn't as miserable as as it seems, as people might think. Yeah, I would say, but far far be it from me to tell people how to feel. And and look, we're we're not here to tell people how to feel. We're here to assess opportunities and markets. And yeah, and we're feeling pretty optimistic as we head into 2024. Good. Well, on that note, then let's bring on Christina and Alessio to discuss that level of optimism and where they see opportunities for 2024. Welcome. Yeah, thank you both for being here. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Jody. Always a pleasure being with you. Thank you, Jody. Thank you, Brian. Really excited to be on. 
so Christina, let's start with you. I, I think what I got from Brian's analysis about egg prices is that as far as markets are concerned, it's not necessarily about labeling things as good or bad, but about are things getting better or are things getting worse? So, you know, I'm curious what you might say to the 80 some odd percent of people who are telling pollsters that the U.S. economy is getting worse. So it's about the lagged effects of monetary policy at the end of the day. It's that we are still seeing and there's much more to be seen in terms of the impact that rate hikes have had, both good and bad. So we're likely, very likely to continue to see significant disinflation, but it comes at a cost. So as we look ahead to 2024, we think of this as a balancing act, right? It's, it's will um, inflation get under control faster uh, then the economy deteriorates. And, and that is the, the very significant balancing act. So hopefully uh, in a few months in a poll, consumers will feel better because we'll have made more progress on uh, disinflation, but we, have, but we won't have had a very significant impact in terms of depressing economic growth. Alessio, what happened to this recession? I, I thought it was the most anticipated recession ever destined to come what happened this year and does it ever come? Well, I think what, what happened is exactly the, the super important element that, that uh, Christina just highlighted, the balancing act between inflation and unemployment, right? Unemployment is at all-time lows. You don't have a recession. Uh, obviously, unemployment is a lagging indicator, but even the leading indicator of unemployment are, are suggesting, if anything, a moderate rise in unemployment that would be perfectly consistent with that Goldilocks scenario that Christina has outlined, where inflation comes down faster than the unemployment rate rises, growth remains good enough, not too hot, which is exactly the perfect uh, development for monetary policy. And, uh, the, you know, we, Brian, we have uh, multiple times over the last two years flagged the rising probabilities of a recession. I think we have never had an official recession call, but we have rightly multiple times in 2022 and 2023 highlighted when we felt that the risks of a recession were rising and offered a template on how to think about that. Uh, I think we, uh, what we are seeing in my mind uh, is a scenario that is very reminiscent of what we saw in 2011 or in 2014, 2015. If you recall, the U.S. economy went and the world economy went through a meaningful deterioration in growth. In some instances, even a couple of negative GDP uh, prints uh, struggled in credit markets. But eventually, those both all those instances turned out to be meaningful uh, soft patches that did not really translate into a recession and the cycle extended on for a few more years. That's the closest analogy that I find today uh, with respect to historical standards in our lifetime. And I remember those well. And of course, in 2011, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it took some type of a policy shift or a policy response to get us there. So 2011, or what was the exact year where Mario Draghi said, I'll do whatever it takes to, to maintain the stability of the euro and keep the eurozone together. And 2015 into 2016, wasn't it the Federal Reserve who said, okay, we were just kidding about raising interest rates. So it likely warrants some type of response by policymakers. And are you seeing 
the expectations of that type of response? I think you're highlighting exactly what the issues were. There was an economic shock or a geopolitical shock, whether it was the European debt crisis, the U.S. sovereign debt downgrade, uh, the energy crisis in the States, the policy response, uh, either fiscal or monetary or both, uh, helped set the economy on, on track. In other words, the, the fate of the economy is not written, right? There is policy mistakes and there is policy responses that affect that path. If we draw an analogy today, um, if inflation, as Christina highlighted, if inflation declines uh, towards target in a credible way, uh, and it's nice to see oil prices are not uh, contributing to that problem, uh, despite the, the terrible escalation of conflicts in the Middle East, um, we we are seeing a rising probability of an actual uh, soft landing on monetary policy where rates may stay high for longer, but markets are correctly pricing as of today a deceleration, lower policy rates by about 100 basis points into the end of 2024. If that pans out and the unemployment rate remains fairly stable, as Christina suggested, I think that is a scenario that would be consistent with us postponing the recession risk by a few years. You know, Christina, just kind of boiling this down in, into a nutshell in terms of, you know, Fed, and we definitely want to talk a little more, more globally <clears throat> later on, but, you know, expectations and predictions that the Fed will start to ease in 2024, you know, what what is the base case that, that's laid out in the outlook for kind of how you're thinking about the timing of when that might happen and, and what that would suggest for, for what the economy is doing. So Jody, great question. And we anticipate that rate cuts would begin um, by the end of the first half of 24. Now, uh, this will, uh, you know, this will be dictated very much by the data we see going forward. But from where we sit today, we think that's very likely. Now, you may recall, if we just go back to September, there was a huge market reaction and the start of, of yields skyrocketing on the long, especially on the long end, when <clears throat> we got the Fed's September dot plot. Um, the June dot plot had implied two rate cuts in 24, four rate cuts in 24, and then the September one uh, uh, implied only two rate cuts in 24. And that was sort of the, the dot plot heard around the world as opposed to the shot heard around the world um, that, that triggered this big rise in yields. And, and I think markets have, have finally come to the realization that the Fed can be um, incredibly wrong, especially the further out they look. I mean, all we have to do is look at the December 21 dot plot uh, and expectations for the Fed funds rate at the end of 22 to know that. And so um, clearly markets have been going through this repricing process. And, and I, I think um, in particular, what we've seen is that recently with uh, the CPI print for October, um, there is this, this great realization um, that in fact, the July rate hike was the last one. And that if Yay. we use that rule of thumb, um, <laughs> that it's about eight, eight and a half months to the first rate cut, That'll take us to the second quarter of 24, and that will probably see around uh, 100 basis points in cuts. But again, we just don't know about the lagged effects of monetary policy. Maybe it's even more than that in 24. Alessio, let's create some conflict here, a little debate. Would you push that back <laughs> a little bit? Would you suggest that the rate cuts may become a little bit later than what Christina is saying? Uh 
My baseline aligns with Christina, but since you want a little bit of a of a match, I I, I, <laughs> I have to find a I have to find a narrative and a scenario that would be perfectly uh, consistent with that long uh, uh, higher rates for longer. And again, I think we shouldn't discount the risk of of um, uh, at this stage in the cycle where the, uh, there is tight. Um, labor markets. Um, if commodity prices, be it food or energy prices, were to uh, increase, you know, it takes very little. Six months of rising commodity prices, which it's somewhat exogenous, geopolitical risk, it's not only demand-driven, it's also supply-driven. There is a non-negligible probability of, of a scenario uh, where the inflation picture changes on a dime and uh, and and this I'm fairly convinced of, central banks around the world have been so shocked by the how wrong they were on inflation uh, that they're, they will be very reluctant to deliver any rate cuts uh, when the optics of inflation are not supporting that decision, right? So uh, not my base case, but um, I would say that's that's more than a 20, 30% probability, which is not negligible, right? Okay, so the so the base cases are aligned, Jody. Good. Well, good. I know you were trying to to prompt something there, but we've got some consensus. <laughs> we're, we're shaking hands instead of uh, using boxing gloves. <laughs> Listen, listen, Alessio is absolutely right. There is that that significant alternate scenario, you know, significant probability of an alternate scenario in which we get more of a hard landing um, because um, rates are higher for longer because of persistently high inflation. Um, the other um, sub scenario within a hard landing is that so much damage has been done to the economy. Um, that uh, that it is sent into recession by the restrictive level of rates as they are now, which I think is a lower probability than than that first scenario about a higher for longer. Um, but but again, uh, I think our base cases are aligned in that um, it it's certainly not um, the highest probability scenario. The highest probability scenario is that that D train, that disinflation train, continues and it's significant. Pulling back a little bit from that U.S. perspective and maybe getting a little more detailed about what you're seeing in, in Europe, the U.K. Or, or Canada, you know, where, what kind of timeline would you see in 2024 for, for that type of policy to see a shift? So I think a lot of the central banks are, are are going to be quite aligned in terms of when they act, um, but it might be for different reasons, right? Um, uh, you know, for some, you could argue they've seen more progress with uh, taking down inflation, while for others, it's more about the economy deteriorating enough to necessitate cuts. Um, I certainly think that that we're likely to see the Bank of England. Um, move sooner rather than later, later there. Um, but I suspect that the second quarter is going to be something of a sweet spot and, and that we'll see um, more than just the Fed acting. Lesia, let's get down to brass tactics here. Let's, let's talk about your regime analysis. Uh, let's talk about how you're positioning as we move through the end of this year into the beginning of next year. And so I love that you talk about things from the perspective of whether we're in a recovery, an expansion, a slowdown, a contraction. What are you seeing right now? What are your indicators telling you 
and what are the implications for markets early on in the year and how that may play out throughout the year? So from a, from a, a market uh, implied growth expectations standpoint, which we monitor through our more uh, asset price-based indicators, uh, we have seen a, a improving uh, sentiment and improving growth expectations since um, late June, early July. And so we have positioned for that recovery in the global cycle uh, already in the middle of the summer, and we continue to be positioned with that view. We see a consistent improvement in growth of um, optimism as implied in the market, right, in market prices uh, into year end. Uh, Interestingly, in the last couple of months, we've also seen validation of this forward-looking market view in the economic data, where consumer sentiment surveys continue to improve globally. Uh, manufacturing business surveys are throffing, right? They're, they're, they're stabilizing at cyclical lows. And even housing indicators, which, which, as we know, housing, because of the rising mortgage costs, uh, you should expect to see an ongoing deterioration there. Instead, we have seen some stabilization in, uh, in, in building permits, housing starts, and so on and so forth. And what's, and what's that about? That's, that's, there's just not enough supply and there's still going to be demand given the demographics of this country? There is there is certainly an element of that, but also the going back to the important point from Christina about the lack of effects of monetary policy. We have spent post GFC 15 years uh, where the private sector has extended duration, has uh, locked in very low interest rates. So the effective cost of, uh, on consumers from interest rates has not fully passed through yet, right? So to your point, that supply, that limited supply is not due to the fact that uh, we're not building new homes, but there, there's not enough turnover. Uh, there's not enough mobility in the, in, in the housing market because uh, a large portion of consumers have locked in uh, interest rates that make them perfectly capable of sustaining the, their life expenses. I'm so happy for my two and a half percent mortgage rate. And I, the, I refinanced the day COVID hit and the big debate in the house was whether we let the appraiser in because we didn't know whether we were all going to get COVID from the appraiser. But best decision I ever made. <laughs> I'm glad that worked out for and you. I had the exact same thing. Yes. But and that creates golden handcuffs, right? Um, no one wants to leave their house because that that's become part of, you know, a very that's a more important consideration sometimes than than if you have uh, four bedrooms or a pool or whatever. Right. Alessio, you, you must have been feeling good um, at least the day that the Consumer Price Index report came out and it was weaker than expectations. And you just had one of those days where value stocks, small cap, international did very well. Um, it's one day, but it was aligned with your expectation of of how these things were going to play out between now and the end of the year and into 2024. Yes, uh, because, you know, as, as I said, from July onward, have markets necessarily validated uh, in the different aspects of capital markets, whether it's asset allocation, style, factor allocation, and, and so regional performance? Uh, the evidence of this recovery in the cycle has not been really, really clear, right? Uh, the day that you're referring to, which is 
It's one day, but it's very indicative of what the market cares about. And the market cares about the nexus that this Christina described. Inflation prints compared to labor market prints is really where the balancing act is today. And on that day, which I believe is significant, um, we saw that perfect cyclical, favorable cyclical reaction. To your point, size and uh, like small caps, mid caps, value stocks meaningfully outperformed quality, meaningfully outperformed tech and large caps. We saw emerging markets perform well, credit spreads compress. So it's saying that the market is ready to react to good news, that good news are not fully priced in. So the question is, will we be right about the cycle? And if we are, the potential for our performance is there. Jody, I know what you're thinking. That's a lot of footnotes that we have to <laughs> put in. But I, I, I was in New York City that day. I presented with Alessio that day. And, and let me just say he was smirking. He was grinning. There's it a wasn't a full smile, but he was he was grinning a little bit. Always glad to see that for sure. And Brian, look, I've heard you quote, what is it? Uh, investors have more than 22 trillion. Is that right? Sitting in yeah. bank deposits and money market strategies. So when when investors are feeling good and they start to smile and want some place to put that money, you know, what what type of risk is that going to cause? I mean, whether it's reinvestment risk or just the the force of all that money potentially coming into markets at once what is you know what is on the lookout for when that that money goes in motion yeah i mean i would i would pose that to christina i mean when she's talking about rate cuts potentially in the future mm -hmm. you know for these investors that seem to love five five and a half percent in short yields well what does that mean for them at some point those rates have to come down right Oh, absolutely. Those rates will come down and investors will move their money. What we have seen uh, is very mobile money over the last few years. They might as well have sneakers uh, on them because they've moved. They've moved out of traditional bank accounts into high yielding accounts um, and they are poised to move, in my opinion, in a significant way. Um, and they're likely to follow the path of historical recovery trades. So that ultimately means a broadening of the market uh, because it won't just be the defensive, the large caps, um, you know, the traditional areas where investors have focused recently. It's going to be about the small caps. It's going to be about the international, especially emerging markets. And Alessio, that, that would suggest to me that's how we normalize the yield curve, right? But but I, I would expect, given this conversation, you would you would think that perhaps you would see would we be in a slowdown regime at some point in 2024? And then how does the yield curve respond within that? Where do we think rates settle? And and will you make sure to tell all of us how we want to be positioning for that type of an environment when it happens? To start from the last question, yes, we'll continue to provide our uh, uh, our market polls on a monthly basis. I think what you outlined, I think it's Hold on one possible, sec. Right? Invesco.com slash portfolio playbook, right? Oh, very good, Brian. Nice. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead, friend. Perfect. No, thank you. Thank you. So um, we could have a situation where, yes, growth actually in the U.S., we find that uh, growth is leading. Uh, we believe the U.S. is already reemerged to growing above its long-term trend, while Europe and emerging markets are lagging somewhat behind. So let's fast forward in, uh, by a couple of quarters and assume that we are correct on our cyclical rebound. Now, a slowing, an eventual 
normalization or re-slowing of the economy in the second half of the year, which would then justify and amplify the rate cuts that uh, Christina is talking about, that the yield curve has been inverted or flat now for a prolonged period of time, the natural shape of the yield curve is upward sloping. And the direction of the yield curve is, I don't want to say easy, but easier to predict than the level of rates, right? The yield curve is more stable um, and tends to have mean reverting properties. So an upward sloping yield curve driven by lower interest rates in the front end of the curve would be cyclically uh, a very natural outcome for markets. So Brian, we're very much in the details of yield curves and, and monetary policy. I, I do have a question though. I'm just wondering when you know, you're, you're faced with the task of, of creating an outlook for the next year and just thinking about all of the other things that are going on in the world at the same time, right? Whether it's geopolitics or whether it's uh, an election coming up in uh, 2024, just curious how much these types of factors weigh in on how you're creating your base case or thinking about your alternate scenarios. I mean, I, I try to look beyond. I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I'll pose that to our guests. Um, from the geopolitical, I always try and contemplate whether it's going to re remain regional, in mm -hmm. which case you can largely look beyond. And everyone knows my opinion on elections, so we could ask. <laughs> they don't matter to uh, markets. Yeah, they don't matter I mean, to markets. It, I, Jody came up with the title for my election paper <laughs> this year, which is uh, – people care about elections and markets don't. So, so, you know, my opinion, but let's see if mm -hmm. our friends on the podcast have any opinions. Yeah. Christina, let's start with you, if you don't mind. Yeah. I don't think elections matter. Um, certainly not in a material way over more than the very short term. Certainly we can see short-term gyrations as a result, but I don't think it, it really matters um, uh, in the, in the uh, medium or longer term. Now, geopolitical issues, they can have a bigger impact, although, again, very much in the shorter term, in my opinion. And we always have to ask ourselves, uh, is it contained or is it contagious? Uh, and I think that's a question you ask about any kind of crisis, whether it's a financial crisis or a geopolitical crisis. Uh, but I, I tend to, to not... Um, let myself get concerned about geopolitical crises because we know the history and what the history has told us is that it doesn't matter to markets uh, in any material way over the longer and, term. And so far, we would categorize Russia, Ukraine and what's going on in the Middle East as contained? Uh, I would say so. I mean, certainly there is that risk that um, that it becomes uh, contagious in the Middle East, um, but but we can certainly hope that it's contained and that it ends soon. I agree with Christina, and I think we, we mentioned earlier oil prices as being a real-time barometer to determine when, when a regional problem becomes a, a, a global systemic problem. Oil prices is a very simple way to think about that transmission mechanism that affects everyone. But... Christina said something important earlier that on, on monetary policy and recessions, which applies also here with geopolitics. You don't position a portfolio ahead of geopolitical risk, which is a kind of like a lottery ticket in terms of probabilities, right? In terms of how rare and difficult to understand they are. But once a geopolitical risk hits, there is also often the right or wrong policy response, right? So again, we're back to that template that Christina described watch for that policy response, watch for um, what um, 
what policymakers will do to uh, exacerbate or remedy to the problem. And uh, yes, agreed elections. Uh, we, need, we need to make a distinction. Politics don't drive markets. Economic policies drive markets. So once an election outcome is clear, going back to the drawing board and understanding what are the economic policies that come with that election outcome, now you can go back to a sound investment process and determine what the impact on market is, right? So you don't position ahead of an election, but you need, but as investors, we need to understand once the election outcome is certain, what are the economic policy implications, if any, and have they changed? And historically, what we find is that economic policies tend to impact more the relative performance between sectors, because taxation and fiscal policies are often redistribution policies say, between uh, industrials and materials or financials and energy, right? But economic policies rarely go and affect the predetermined direction of uh, bond markets, equity markets, and around the growth cycle, as you, Brian, as I have always described with analyzing the historical analogies between different administrations. You just say it so much more eloquently than I do. So um, nah, I'll, I'll... I'm learning from you. I'm listening to you all the time. <laughs> it's so the Jody, accent, we... Brian. It's the accent. <laughs> <laughs> Are we? We're coming up on the end, Jody. I think we've we've exhausted our time, but I want to make sure we get parting shots from from both guests. I want to make sure that they've been able to articulate precisely what they want to say before we end the podcast. So, Christina, maybe we'll start with you. Sure. Uh, what I would say is that um, this is an environment that is changing as we speak. Um, markets are processing uh, the reality that the Fed has almost certainly um, stopped hiking rates. And that means there is a change in markets because they start to discount an economic recovery. So we're already starting to see that. Of course, in the early stages, there will be a lot of volatility because there is still some level of policy uncertainty. The Fed has not come out and said they've ended rate hikes. Um, and in fact, we might get some hawkish language from the Fed trying to tamp down financial conditions. But in my opinion, this is the beginning of a recovery trade. And I, I think that's important for investors to understand. Um, I'm very excited about the coming months for markets and investors. Alessia? Yes, I think this is an environment, from an investment standpoint, this is an environment where we believe investors are still compensated for adding uh, cyclical risk in their portfolios, maintaining um, uh overweight exposures to uh, things like uh, credit or equities. This is an environment where uh, compensation for risk-taking should still um, play out. We, we are in a cycle that is already somewhat extended and accelerated because of the policy response to COVID. And so this is not a close your eyes and forget your investment strategy. You need to reassess and evaluate uh, how monetary policy is impacting the economy. Uh, we have a long way to go on that. And given the geopolitical risks that are real and, and alive, um, maintaining basically a, a fluid approach to analyzing the situation. And if the facts change, being prepared to change your investment posture. Yeah, I can't agree more with Alessio's last statement, if the facts change, right? Because the lagged effects of monetary policy 
we can guesstimate, but we don't know for sure until we see the data. So Jody, you ready to join Christina and Alessio in the 20% of Americans feeling good about the economy? Sure. As of Let's today, unless the, unless the facts change. Unless the facts change. So Christina, Alessio, thank you so much. As always, we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you. Thank you, Jody. Thank you, Brian. This has been the Greater Possibilities Podcast. Visit Invesco.com slash Brian Levitt to read my latest commentaries. And of course, you can follow me on LinkedIn and on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Brian Levitt, the real Brian Levitt. Jody, great chatting with you. You too. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Invesco's Greater Possibilities podcast. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers and are based on current market conditions as of November 17, 2023, and are subject to change without notice. These opinions may differ from those of other Invesco investment professionals. Invesco is not affiliated with any of the companies or individuals mentioned herein. This does not constitute a recommendation of any investment strategy or product for a particular investor. Investors should consult a financial professional before making any investment decisions. Should this contain any forward-looking statements, understand they are not guarantees of future results. They involve risks, uncertainties, and assumptions. There could be no assurance that actual results will not differ materially from expectations. All investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. An investment cannot be made directly into an index. Polls on the direction of the U.S. economy are from the Associated Press, NORC Research Center, and Gallup as of October 2023. The United States Misery Index tracks the mood of the country by adding the unemployment rate to the inflation rate. The index was 7.1% in November 2023, compared to the long-term average of 9.22% from January 1947 to November 2023. Data from Bloomberg. Discussions about the U.S. inflation rate are from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics as of October 31, 2023, based on the yearly percent change in the U.S. Consumer Price Index, which tracks changes in consumer prices. In June 2022, inflation rose 9.1 percent. In October 2023, inflation rose 3.2 percent. Data on the price of a dozen eggs is from the U.S. Department of Agriculture as of November 14, 2023. Statements about U.S. unemployment are based on the U3 unemployment rate, total in labor force, seasonally adjusted from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics as of October 31, 2023. Statements about markets pricing and lower policy rates are based on Fed Fund Futures data as of November 20, 2023, sourced from Bloomberg. Fed's Fund's futures are financial contracts that represent the market's opinion of where the Fed's fund rate will be at a specific point in the future. The federal funds rate is the rate at which banks lend balances to each other overnight. Statements about the dot plot based on data from the Federal Reserve. The dot plot is a chart that the Federal Reserve uses to illustrate its outlook for the path of interest rates. The discussion about the release of the Consumer Price Index and the one-day reaction of various asset classes is based on data from Bloomberg on November 14, 2023. On that day, the Russell 1000 Value Index returned 2.24%. The Russell 1000 Growth Index returned 1.95%. The S&P 500 Information Technology Index returned 1.92%. The S&P 500 Quality Index returned 1.48%. The Russell 2000 Index returned 5.47%. The Russell Midcap Index returned 3.33%. The Russell 1000 Index returned 2.08%. The MSCI All Country Index, XUS, returned 1.74% and the MSCI Emerging Market Index returned 0.72%. 
credit spreads fell from 125 basis points at the beginning of the week prior to the Consumer Price Index report to 114 at the end of the week that the Consumer Price Index was reported. Credit spreads represented by the Bloomberg U.S. Corporate Bond Index option-adjusted spread. The Consumer Price Index, CPI, measures change in consumer prices as determined by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Core CPI excludes food and energy prices, while headline CPI includes them. The Russell 1000 Growth Index is an unmanaged index considered representative of large-cap growth stocks. The Russell 1000 Value Index is an unmanaged index considered representative of large-cap value stocks. The Russell 2000 Index is an unmanaged index considered representative of small-cap stocks. The Russell Midcap Index is an unmanaged index considered representative of mid-cap stocks. The Russell 1000 Index is an unmanaged index considered representative of large-cap stocks. These Russell indexes are trademark service marks of the Frank Russell Company. The S&P 500 Information Technology Index includes stocks in the S&P 500 Index classified as information technology companies based on the Global Industry Classification Standard Methodology. The S&P 500 Quality Index screens holdings based on three fundamental measures of quality, profitability, earnings quality, and financial robustness. The MSCI All Country World XUS Index is an unmanaged index considered representative of large and mid-cap stocks across developed and emerging markets excluding the U.S. The MSCI Emerging Markets Index captures large and mid-cap representation across 26 emerging market countries. The Bloomberg U.S. Corporate Bond Index measures the investment-grade, fixed-rate, taxable corporate bond market. Option-adjusted spread is the yield spread, which must be added to a benchmark yield curve to discount a security's payments to match its market price, using a dynamic pricing model that accounts for embedded options. Statements about the amount of money investors have in cash are sourced from the U.S. Federal Reserve and Investment Company Institute as of October 31, 2023 based on total amount in U.S. bank deposits and money market strategies. Statements about the level of short yield sources from Bloomberg as of November 20, 2023, based on the three-month U.S. Treasury rate. Fixed income investments are subject to credit risk of the issuer and the effects of changing interest rates. Interest rate risk refers to the risk that bond prices generally fall as interest rates rise and vice versa. An issuer may be unable to meet interest and or principal payments, thereby causing its instruments to decrease in value and lowering the issuer's credit rating. In general, stock prices fluctuate, sometimes widely in response to activities specific to the company, as well as general market, economic, and political conditions. A value style of investing is subject to the risk that the valuations never improve, or that the returns will trail other styles of investing or the overall stock markets. Stocks of small and mid-sized companies tend to be more vulnerable to adverse development, may be more volatile, and may be illiquid or restricted as to resale. The risks of investing in securities of foreign issuers, including emerging market issuers, can include fluctuations in foreign currencies, political and economic instability, and foreign taxation issues. Many products and services offered in technology-related industries are subject to rapid obsolescence, which may lower the value of the issuers. Gross domestic product is a broad indicator of a region's economic activity, measuring the monetary value of all the finished goods and services produced in that region over a specific period of time. A basis point is one one-hundredth of a percentage point. The yield curve plots interest rates at a set point in time of bonds having equal credit quality but differing maturity dates to project future interest rate changes and economic activity. The front end of the yield curve refers to bonds with shorter maturity dates. An inverted yield curve is one in which shorter-term bonds have a higher yield than longer-term bonds of the same credit quality. In a normal yield curve, longer-term bonds have a higher yield. A steepening yield curve means that the difference between short-term and long-term is increasing. 
Credit spread is the difference in yield between bonds of similar maturity but with different credit quality. GFC stands for Global Financial Crisis. The Greater Possibilities podcast is brought to you by Invesco Distributors, Inc.